Good morning, New Heights, and those of you joining our online service today. We are continuing our study through the Gospel of Mark, and today we look at Mark 10, 32 through 45. I invite you to follow me through our text, but before we encounter this powerful passage, I want to jump back to Kevin's message from last week. Kevin reminded us, for the last two chapters, Mark has been telling us Jesus was going to Jerusalem. Along the way, he has twice told his disciples he is going to Jerusalem to die. He told them in Mark 8, 31, and then in Mark 9, 30 through 32. Each time, the disciples divert the conversation away from what Jesus is telling them. In Mark 8, Peter rebukes Jesus for saying he was going to die in Jerusalem. Then in Mark 9, when Jesus tells them he is going to die, the disciples don't understand what he means. And rather than asking him for an explanation, they begin arguing about who is the greatest. And as Kevin pointed out, they did this to decide for themselves who would be in charge when Jesus was gone. In Mark 10, 13 through 31, Jesus has two unique teaching moments. The first was his using a child as an object lesson to teach the necessity of humility to be included in Jesus' kingdom. Then he has an encounter with a wealthy young Jewish leader whose dependence on material wealth blocked his willingness to depend on Jesus as the true source for eternal life. Kevin made this point. Greatness in the kingdom, by God's definition, is about service, not status. It's not about hierarchy, but humility. It's not about greed, but about gratitude. The meaning of that statement is seen again in our text. In Mark 10, 32-45, we join Jesus as He leads the disciples, both the twelve and others who followed, from the Jordan River area toward Jerusalem. In Mark 10, 32-34, He tells the disciples for the third time He's going to Jerusalem to die. Then in Mark 10, 35-40, two of His disciples, James and John, ignoring what Jesus said, use the opportunity to demand they become co-rulers with Him in glory. In Mark 10, 41-45, the rest of the disciples are indignant or angry at James and John's arrogance, maybe because they didn't think of it first. Jesus then explains once again, greatness in the kingdom is about service, not status, not hierarchy, but humility. As Jesus is course-correcting the disciples about greatness in His kingdom, He says something that He has not said before about His purpose in going to Jerusalem to die. He says in Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Scholars believe this verse is the pinnacle of the entire book of Mark because Jesus clearly gives the reason, the meaning, of why He came to earth, why He was going to die, and what that means for all who would become His disciples. Now let's dig in to the first part of this passage as Jesus tells what is going to happen to Him in Jerusalem. Mark writes, They were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished 
while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. As Jesus begins to lead the way to Jerusalem, the group of the disciples were both astonished and afraid. It's almost as if they began to understand Jesus going to Jerusalem had a shadow of darkness. It's as if they caught a glimpse. This was his last trip to Jerusalem, and it would not end well. So again, Jesus pulls the twelve aside and spells it out for them in detail. What I want you to notice is the legal language Jesus uses here in this passage because he has not used these words before. Notice the words delivered over, condemn him to death, hand over, and kill him. Every one of those words imply some type of legal process. You can't be delivered over without an arrest. You can't be condemned to death without a trial. You can't be handed over to the Gentiles or Romans without a judgment. You can't be killed without a sentence for a crime. The words in these two verses mean Jesus will be tried, found guilty, and punished for a crime. But these verses still do not explain why this death must happen and why it must happen in a court setting. The three times Jesus predicts his death shows his death was not accidental or random to his mission. Instead, it was planned and absolutely central to both his identity as Messiah and Savior, as well as his purpose on earth. After Jesus tells what is going to happen to him, two disciples tell Jesus what they want to happen for them. Let's look first at verses 35 through 37. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. James and John, rather than letting the darkness of what's to come settle in on them, They reach down into their own selfish motives and tell Jesus what they want to happen for them. It's almost like they can't stop themselves and overreach with the demand, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. As much as Jesus had said and done, they could not grasp he would allow himself to be humiliated by suffering and death. If they had known Jesus' glory was the courage to accept suffering and death, they would not have asked for more. I love Jesus' response in verse 38 and 39. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus flat out tells them they don't get it. Then he digs deeper 
with his question about how far they are willing to go in discipleship. The Old Testament uses the word cup as a symbol for God's justice and baptism meant to be swallowed up in calamity and chaos. Both of those were realized in Jesus' death on the cross. It's obvious they don't have a clue about what Jesus meant because they say, we can. Jesus simply ignores their arrogance and tells them in verses 39 and 40, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Jesus is telling these two brothers they will experience death and suffering. Acts 12.2 tells us James would be the first of the apostles to be beheaded. Later, in 81 AD, during the persecution of Christians under the Roman emperor Domitian, John would be exiled for two years to the Greek island of Patmos. As to their being given places of glory, Jesus tells them it's not his decision, but only for those chosen by God. Jesus tells the disciples what is going to happen. James and John tell Jesus what they wanted to happen. Then in the final section of our text, Jesus tells the disciples the full answer to why everything is happening. Sidebar conversations don't stay secret from the rest of the disciples. Verse 41 records their being completely bent out of shape when they hear what James and John ask Jesus. To calm them all down, Jesus gives a masterful explanation about what true greatness means. Beginning in verse 42 through verse 45, he says, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is again reinforcing the way of living in the kingdom of God, as Kevin said last week. Greatness in the kingdom, by God's definition, is about service, not status. Not about hierarchy, but humility. The culture of the Romans and the Jews was an interwoven complex of gaining position through power. Jesus tells them, not so with you. Instead, service to others is true greatness, and sacrificing yourself for others is true honor. What he says next is the key to why he was going to Jerusalem to die and why his coming was more than a good example of humble sacrifice. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. By using the phrase, did not come to be served, Jesus is saying he existed before he was born to Mary, and his coming was to fulfill a specific purpose. Paul would write in Philippians 2, 5-8 of Jesus, 
who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The next reason Jesus says he came was to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus makes clear he gave his life as a ransom. The word did not mean a payment to kidnappers as it does today, but to purchase a person out of slavery. Scholars say the word was used to define the price paid to bring a prisoner of war out of his captivity. Jesus' death was for or on behalf of many, meaning his death was a substitute for an unlimited number of others. Simply put, Jesus died on the cross. He paid the ultimate price to set us free from a captivity to sin and death. We could not have any other way. That's why Jesus was going to Jerusalem. That's why he would be arrested, tried, condemned, abused, and executed. He didn't die because he lost control of some other plan. Now he was killed so that we could know what life is like free from the grip of sin and death, now and forever. Now, what does the story of Jesus going to Jerusalem mean to you and to me? I doubt if there is one person watching or listening to this message who doesn't have some sense of being unsettled. Some idea of looking at our world and saying, it's not supposed to be this way. With that comes an exhaustion, a heaviness, sadness, and an awareness of loss. Jesus didn't talk about the mockery, spitting, flogging, and death as though he were celebrating. I cannot help but think that there may have even been a soft sorrow when he spoke. We each have a choice about what we do with our own brokenness and the world's brokenness. We can divert or numb our confusion as the disciples did three times, but that doesn't affect our reality. Instead, we can let the words and actions of Jesus penetrate the places where we are living in the shadows and find light, life, hope, and peace. Jesus' words and actions tell us we need someone to do something for us we cannot do for ourselves. Jesus turns the culture then and now upside down with his example and call of humble service. Yet his coming was more than a mere example. His coming was the ultimate act of unconditional love for a world in rebellion against him and his heavenly father. How was it an act of love? It was an act of ultimate love because he sacrificed himself to liberate us from slavery to sin and death. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Later, John quotes Jesus as saying, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. God loved this rebellious human planet so much 
that he gave his one and only son as a sacrifice for us. Jesus said there is no love greater than a love willingly given as a sacrifice for others. It was out of passionate, unconditional love for a broken human creation that he would say, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What Jesus did was become a willing, humble, loving sacrifice of substitution for the debt we each owe to God for our sin. Remember, he gave his life as a ransom for many. It's popular now to want Jesus without any blood, any death, any pain, because we imagine that an idea of Jesus dying in our place makes God out to be a loveless, bloodthirsty deity who must be appeased. Instead, the reality is there is no real love without a sacrifice of substitution. My wife Kathy and I are blessed with two daughters and their husbands and six grandchildren. You knew I had to work that in. Last week, we were setting up a FaceTime call with our daughter and her family who live in North Carolina. We were supposed to do it Sunday afternoon, and when I called, she texted back. She forgot and was in a meeting at church. Now, being the very patient father I am, I began a text back to her that said, Oh, sure, it's not a problem. We're just the ones who raised you, fed you, paid for your cars, education, and wedding. So let us know when it might be convenient for us to work into your busy schedule. Of course, I was joking and deleted it and sent back, No problem, precious. Just let us know. There is always a sacrifice of substitution where there is real love. Sure, we sacrifice for our children and our daughters and their husbands are sacrificing for their children. We did it and they do it because of sacrificial love. Their sacrifice is a substitution doing for them what their children could not do for themselves. Here's the thing. You need Jesus to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. If you could have fixed the deepest parts of you where you say, I'm not supposed to be this way. If you could have done that by yourself, you would have done that a long time ago. But you haven't because you can't. You can say that doesn't make sense. I'll try another way. I don't believe that. I'm not that bad. That's not who I want Jesus to be. And many other things. The bottom line is, What do you do with his words? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What do you do with ransom that a price was paid to set you free from sin and death? Recently, I watched a documentary about Christian singers and songwriters from the late 60s and 70s. They wrote and sang the music I listened to when my faith became real to me in 1973. Most of the names you wouldn't recognize except for Keith Green. I mean, you can't teach at New Heights without quoting Keith Green. One of the artists recalled how simple their songs were because all they knew was Jesus had saved them out of a life of brokenness. It brought back a memory when Kathy told me, I've never known anyone just so glad to be saved. I admit 
My generation is guilty of presenting the message of salvation without full discipleship. So I own that. I want you to know, though, Jesus said he came to seek and to save the lost. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What will you do with the ransom Jesus paid to set you free from the slavery to sin and death? Ignore it? Deconstruct it? Redefine it? Outgrow it? The payment has been made for all our sin. As a song from my youth said, believe and receive. There are six words I haven't mentioned that are included in Jesus' explanation of what was going to happen to him. At the end of all he said to the disciples, he added, three days later, he will rise again. He will rise again. Death could not hold him because he died to destroy it. I heard theologian N.T. Wright say in a lecture, we live in a world where God raised his son from the dead. There is our hope in our confusion, sorrow, heartbreak, anxiety, and exhaustion. Friends, because that is true, everything is possible. The simple question today is, have you believed and received Jesus Christ as the payment for your sins? If not, then why not today? Isn't it time for you to accept this substitution? Maybe you don't see how all that is broken can be made right. Remember his promise of hope. I will rise again. Those four words contain the power to change everything. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you that you have loved us so much. You sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay the price for our sins. I pray for those like me who've experienced that freedom to once again cherish what you have done. I pray that those who have never made the choice to receive what you have already done for them, that today they would stop trying and begin trusting you to save them from their sins. I pray as well for all of those who follow Jesus to live in the fullness of his resurrection now. His life is our life right now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.